This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 676, and this week we welcome Dr. R. Soberanian for a discussion on international IAQ and low-cost sensors. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show, you can continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April AIRE.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to report that Dr. Neil Zimmerman, Ph.D. of Glendale, Wisconsin, was first to identify noble gases, as the term used to refer to the group of elements listed in group 18 of the periodic table. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, September 22nd, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the company credited with developing the first portable device for sensing a toxic gas during mining operations. Back to you, Joe. All right. So this week we've got Dr. Submaranian. He is a senior scientist at the Environment and Sustainability Center of the Cotter Environment and Energy Research Institute, where he leads research on sensors for air quality and climate with applications in outdoor air quality monitoring and forecasting, IAQ management, and measurement of greenhouse gas emissions. He's also a research fellow at the Kigali Collaborative Research Center in Rwanda and an adjunct faculty member in the hometown of IAQ Radio at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Joe. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you, and uh, looking forward to a great discussion here. You you bring up a lot of great memories when I think about the days back in the Pittsburgh area. I went to the University of Pittsburgh and uh, spent a lot of time close to CMU, so... uh, it's great to have a, a fellow 
part-time Pittsburgh on our on our show. But uh, I want to. I'm kind of interested in your background. Um, how did you get involved in this whole idea of? Uh, I know you do a lot of outdoor air, but also indoor air. Right, uh, and sorry. Uh, so. I think the uh, idea was, you know, I mean, we traditionally do air quality monitoring and air quality research using very expensive monitors, right? These are instruments, for example, for measuring ozone can cost like five to $10,000 or something that's for PM 2.5, which is fine particulate matter, uh, dust and combustion soot that goes into your lungs, for example, uh, that is typically, you know, 20 to $30,000, right? And our more and it goes up from there and uh so but but you know you can't put a lot of that in a town and if you want to map pollution around a city like pittsburgh which has a lot of valleys and you know nooks and crannies if you will uh where pollution can go anywhere and there are lots of restaurants for example that you're not able to capture those hot spots you need some way to capture that on a more sustained basis. And so low-cost sensors appear to be a way to do that. About, uh, I think a lot of people started using low-cost sensors a few years ago, 2013, 2014. And around that time, I started looking into it and uh, actually ended up partnering with a company in Pittsburgh, a startup. Uh, and we ended up developing the ramp from there and uh, you know, got some funding from the US EPA and Heinz Endowments. And yeah, that ended up deploying the ramp network from there. And we're going to go into a lot more detail on that topic in a moment. But before we do, I'd kind of like to get your your international perspective there. You're you're at the uh, what is it, the Environment and Sustainability Center in Qatar. Yeah. Um, what what's the I guess how how aware are people in Qatar about indoor air quality? Is it even on the radar? Uh, I think it's getting there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's uh, so so in a place like Qatar, because we are in a hot desert environment, uh, we basically spend. So I think the, you know, the common metric in the U.S., for example, is that, yes, outdoor air pollution is important, but we spend 90 percent of our time indoors. Right. In right. Qatar, for the most part, it's probably closer to 100 percent. And that's just because it's just really hot outside or else it's really hot and humid outside. Uh, there are two, three months of the year, typically November, December, Jan, maybe Feb, where it's cooler and much more pleasant. Those are the best times of the year in Qatar. And it's pretty nice out. But most of the other months, it's really hard to spend most of the time indoors. Uh, so I think uh, people... Uh, well, I think so. We have actually started looking at this. I think there are people who are interested in it. And, uh, you know, there's industry that's looking into it. Uh, plus, there's moves towards uh, indoor air quality uh, regulation, if you will. I wouldn't call it regulation, but definitely interest from uh, the authorities about how do we improve indoor air quality. Uh, and so, yeah, it's definitely gathering, you know, uh, people are more aware of the problem and are starting to look into that now. And we were talking before the show uh, a little bit about outdoor pollution where you're at now. And I, I automatically, like many people, probably assume it's from, you know, the gas and oil industry. But I didn't think of the big particulate matter issue that you deal with. Can you talk to us a little bit about what, about what the biggest particulate matter issue is? Well, I mean, uh, the so we are still, you know, so there haven't been a there hasn't been a lot of air quality research in Qatar. 
right? I mean, there yeah. have been a few studies, but not a lot. And this is true also for the Middle East. Uh, but uh, what we do know is that Qatar, like the Middle East, is, you know, in a big desert environment. And so you do have sandstorms, for example, and uh, which do contribute a lot of PM2.5 and PM10 dust pollution to the city. Uh, there is uh, a lot, lot of construction activity going on, which also contributes a lot of resuspended dust, for example. Uh, and uh, there's also lots of traffic. Uh, so there isn't a very strong public uh, transport infrastructure here. It's all cars. Uh, though now, as part of the efforts towards making a sustainable World Cup, Qatar is hosting the FIFA World Cup this year. And as part of that, we now have a very efficient metro network. And for a lot of the matches, for a lot of the stadiums, the best way to get there is the metro. And people actually are taking the metro. So we'll see as it improves. But right now, a lot of the pollution does come from cars, does come from trucks, does come from buses. Uh, like any other city, but there's a huge component of dust pollution from the desert. Uh, you know, whenever the wind blows and picks it up, there's also some transported pollution from other industrial facilities, uh, you know, to our neighboring countries probably. But uh, yeah, Qatar itself, we are a gas-driven economy. Natural gas is our biggest export and biggest product. Uh, so not so much oil processing. I know in, in many countries, cooking is a source of indoor air quality issues, and in, in the United States as well, when we have gas cooking, what's what's the predominant? Is it mostly gas stoves? Well, my house has electric stoves. Electric, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, I think uh, a lot of people here do have electric stoves. I don't think I've seen it. I mean, there's probably also piped gas, but that's probably, a good, that's, I mean, that is a natural source of, cooking fuel if we really want it here right because we do produce a lot of natural gas and i noticed in your bio you you're a research fellow at the kigali collaborative research center in, in rwanda and i i was a little surprised a few years back i do these indoor environmentalist courses i, I used to now luke guards taking those over pretty much but um we had some people come over from Africa for a five-day class in indoor air quality. I was really surprised. What 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 kind of when you were working in Rwanda, what kind of um I guess how knowledgeable or how aware are people of indoor air quality issues there? So I think it depends on who you're talking to. Uh I think historically there is a lot of uh so so the health burden from air pollution. I think is evenly split probably between indoor air pollution and outdoor air pollution. And that's because in a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of countries in Africa, uh, people often use uh, charcoal or wood to, to cook, right? They, you know, I've been to uh, rural Rwanda and, uh, you know, rural Tanzania where there isn't electricity, but and so people just use three stone fires. This is the traditional way of cooking with wood. And that leads to a lot of smoke indoors, right? And, pe and people have been trying to change that. I think there has been a lot of research effort on trying to do clean cook stoves or cleaner cook stoves, but that hasn't really made a lot of headway. Uh, I think the, the people, I, I think scientists are generally aware of the problem. Public health people are aware of the problem, which is why you have people coming and taking a class on indoor air quality, for example. Uh, but, uh, you know, in gas, generally gas and electricity are expensive in a lot of countries in Africa. So people mm. tend to use charcoal and wood for cooking. 
And so that leads to a lot of indoor air pollution. Yeah, I'm just curious in the, the Middle East and, and, you know, I see in ASHRAE publications and, you know, with the new buildings going up and so on, but the, there's an interest in reducing greenhouse gas emission. At least there seems to be. Um, and you kind of have to think, well, in countries with so much oil and gas, is that real? Is that interest real, or is it something that's kind of put out there as a, you know, good good publicity? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, it's very real. Uh, I mean, it's this is also true for a lot of corporations, you know, even the U.S. or Europe, right? They have you have ESG Environment Sustainability Guidelines, right, that people have to follow and good reporting and things like that. Uh, but uh, there is. If for Qatar, particularly, there is Qatar, there's the National Vision 2030, as part of which there is an effort to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the, I think there is, so Qatar Energy has, I think, uh, I think this is probably public information. You can look it up. Uh, they have invested a lot of money into reducing methane emissions. So, for example, if you look at gas production, uh, flaring is a very common problem, right? And in addition, when you flare gas, which is, you know, unused gas, you can also have a lot of uh, unburnt gas escaping, which is methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. Uh, and this is a problem that probably people in Pennsylvania are very familiar with. Yes. And uh, uh, so I believe that uh, flaring has been almost eliminated, if not like or reduced by 90 percent in Qatar over the last 10 years. Mm. That's been a huge success. And uh, I think uh, there are huge efforts to actually look at and capture fugitive emissions, which is the next target in these gas processing facilities. Uh, so, you know, sustainability is a very, uh, you know, very important goal. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's real money behind it. Are there any companies that specialize in indoor air quality is there like a little iaq industry like there is here in the united states do you have anything similar in cotter yeah i mean we do have the you know the green building type you know green building council type uh, organizations here that do certify buildings new buildings especially and with the associated industry that actually does you know your typical consulting firms that do some monitoring whether it is periodic monitoring or not uh i think uh a a push will probably be for uh, more continuous monitoring. I think that will come. I think that hasn't happened yet in uh, the U.S. I think it's only, uh, I think Platinum Lead probably now has air quality monitoring as more beyond just CO2, right? I mean, looking at PM2.5 and BOCs and all that. But even that is just a one time once the building is constructed. That isn't a continuous monitoring. I think Qatar is probably in the same uh, boat, uh, but there are moves to make it more continuous. And, uh, you know, I think we're just as, uh, you know, just as advanced as any other place. All right. Let's let's go into the low cost sensor uh, topic here. I guess first I, I see you on Twitter and you talk about low cost sensors and um, you were thinking about writing a book on the topic. And I'm wondering what got you interested in that topic? How did you get started dealing so much with low cost sensors? Yeah. So, you know, coming back to this, uh, uh, the idea that, you know, we have so. Uh, so I worked at Carnegie Mellon for my PhD, and then I, I was working at Carnegie Mellon from 2013 as a research scientist. And the way we traditionally mapped pollution across Pittsburgh, right? And because Pittsburgh, 
uh, you know, as you know, has a lot of local hotspots that may be in you know, local restaurants or other emissions nearby or because of the terrain, uh, the pollution from some of our steel industry may go a certain way. The only way to actually map that was previously to take one of our mobile labs and drive around, right? And you had to, so number one, you own, so either you have a stationary monitor that would be either at the Allegheny County Health Department in Lawrenceville, or it would be at the Carnegie Mellon University campus, for example, just one spot in Pittsburgh, or you would put the same instruments on a, on a, in a van, like a Nissan van or whatever you have, and drive it around and make measurements. And Carnegie Mellon, you know, the group at Carnegie Mellon, the Center for Atmospheric Particle Studies of which I'm part, actually has those mobile platforms. And we have been doing those studies led by my colleague, Albert Presto, who's a professor in mechanical engineering. Uh, but the challenge is that you're only making measurements at the time the car is actually there on the street, right? And mm -hmm. this is a lot of manual effort because somebody has to keep driving it around and then you analyze all that data. Uh, so sometime around 2014, 2015, people started talking about low-cost sensors and putting out this is this huge, uh, you know, organic growth, if you will. People started looking at these cheap sensors online and trying to use it. And so we were like, all right, uh, how do we use this to put a bunch of these sensors around, say, Pittsburgh? And can we map pollution that way? Because now you have, say, 50 or 100 monitors around Pittsburgh. And so now we are monitoring 24 seven at a hundred different locations or 50 different locations. That has real power, really powerful implications for being able to capture, for example, where is the pollution in Pittsburgh? Where is it coming from? You can actually identify local hotspots. You can look at the impact of some large industry that's south of Pittsburgh, shall we say, remain and remaining unnamed. But you know, where is its pollution going? You can map this out. And so we started looking at that. And as it so happened, I ended up uh, uh, having dinner with, a, with, a, with another CMU uh, uh, graduate who had started a company called Sensevere. And they were in the business of making environmental sensors. And I said, I'd like to get these low-cost sensors, but I have no electrical engineering background. He was like, oh, sure, we can put this together. And so they built the hardware and we characterized the box. And uh, between the two of us, we came up with the RAM, uh, which is now made by Sensit that took over Sensevere. Uh, and they're currently based in Indiana. But that is how the RAM came about between, you know, uh, two, between industry in Pittsburgh and academia in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, we got support from the US EPA through an air pollution monitoring for communities grant. And we also got support from the Heinz Endowments, uh, who have been fantastic. Uh, and uh, yeah, we ended up deploying a network of 50 ramps in Pittsburgh. And right now I think it's down to 30 because that's decent enough. We have, we have you know, we oversampled initially and now we can scale it back, uh, but you've got a lot of good data out of it and the data continues to be shared with the public. And um, ballpark idea, the, the ramp, does ramp stand for something first of all? Yeah, there you go, my webpage. Uh, I think uh, Albert and I were just, uh, you know, chatting and we ended up coming up with real-time affordable multi-pollutant uh, sensor, right? Okay. And I think some people now call it the remote air monitoring something, but uh, yeah, it's become the ramp. <laughs> and ballpark, how much does one of the, did one of those ramps cost? 
I think it depends. I think you have to go with the configuration and you know which you which sensors you want inside. But uh, and again, the ramp is one of those. It's just one company. Uh, Sensevir is one company now owned by Sensit, which is gas leak detection, right? And uh, I think they can give you a better price. But a lot of different companies do make similar boxes now, and these boxes go anywhere from four thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars. I think the ramps okay. are probably like you know at the lower end of that range. But so these are a more. Uh, but the but the difference is you know. Uh, they sound still expensive, right? I mean, nobody's, you know, I mean, I personally would be hesitant to shell out $4,000 from my own pocket for a pollution monitor, right? Right. (laughs) Uh, It's not not for everyone, Uh, but it measures PM2.5, possibly PM10, uh, also measures your gases, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, ozone, nitrogen dioxide, uh, a comparable reference monitor with all of those measurements is probably like a hundred thousand hmm. dollars. So you know you're reducing the cost by a factor of twenty. Right, right. Now, as far as you know, we're seeing particle counters and low cost sensors in the you know one hundred, two hundred dollar range. Are they comparable? Surprisingly, yes. Hmm. <laughs> so. Uh, for example, you know, you look at some of the ramp pictures, we actually have a little purple air sensor plugged into the base ramp for PM. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, so right now, what you're seeing here is the MET1 neighborhood uh, PM monitor, the, you know, the white uh, cylinder next to the gray box, right? Yes. And uh, no, no, yeah, look at the one on the patio. The, the, yeah, that one right there. That's a MET1 a neighborhood PM monitor. And the ramp base itself, uh, and we had a similar purple air sensor that way. And you know, the purple air is just two hundred and fifty dollars or something like that. Uh, they're great. Uh, they are very precise and reproducible, which is great. Uh, we still have to calibrate them uh, because they're just you know light scattering devices, and at high humidity, you end up measuring uh, reporting PM that's like two to three times what it actually is in the atmosphere. Uh, and so we have to do some careful calibration of those sensors before we use the data. You know, I think some people may wonder, you know, how does monitoring outdoor air like you are with ramp affect indoor air? And uh, we've had on the show in the past, Linda Wigington with Roxas, reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces. So Mm -hmm. a lot of what we're breathing inside came from outside. Yeah. Did you are you familiar with Linda and her group and what they were doing? Yeah, yeah, they've been doing fantastic work, uh, and you know they've been very involved with the community and uh, uh, you know doing interventions, showing people how to improve their indoor air quality and using the sensors to track the improvements. They've been doing some fantastic work for sure. Uh, are these low cost sensors now uh, catching on worldwide? Are people using them all over the world? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you go to, for example, the purple air map or, you know, there's an open AQ archive and people use it for outdoor air quality monitoring. You often don't see what people are doing with it indoors. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think people are using it uh, all over. And uh, I think the, uh, the, so the core sensor itself, right, which is the basic nephilometer that you can buy. Uh, it comes from this company called Plant Tower in China, or it comes from this Swiss company called Sensirion. 
Honeywell makes a similar product. And these things by themselves are like $10 or $15 or $20. I think the Sincerian is probably like $50 each. And then you need to add the electronics and things like that. But essentially what that opens up is people with DIY skills in electronics can actually put that together in a box, right? And so there have been huge, uh, so I think the purple air actually started off in somebody's garage in Utah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just burgeoned from there. So the uh, accessibility and the affordability of the core sensor itself has made it really popular. And that's the sensor for particulate? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's for PM. And now I'm not as familiar with Purpleware as I am with uh, like Fubot. Are you familiar with the Fubot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had particulate, but they also had a temperature relative humidity sensor, I believe, and yeah. a total VOC. Yeah. How same kind of if you could give us the same background on those types of uh, sensors compared yeah. to the PM two point five, still pretty accurate. Uh, I think so. Uh, so, so the term I'd use for the PM sensors is actually precise, not accurate. Okay. Uh, you know, so at least it's good for trends, for example. And you just, if you need to use it for anything more than that, you actually need to do some careful calibration of the sensor. Uh, the temperature relative humidity measurements are usually pretty standard. I think they're usually made by Bosch, so it's a pretty robust, you know, manufacturing. The whole idea with all of these sensors, the reason why they're so cheap is now they're being mass manufactured by these companies, right? And you know, when you economies of scale really play into it. And uh, so, yeah, exactly. You know, you go to AliExpress, you can buy it for like you know $14, depending on where you get it from. Uh, and uh, so, so temperature relative humidity, PM sensors are generally pretty precise. Uh, the... VOC sensors, uh, they tend to be, I think, I mean, I haven't done a lot of work with them. We did test them out uh, in Pittsburgh, and basically it was more of a humidity measurement because the sensor itself is really sensitive to a lot of humidity artifacts. Uh, and uh, it's sure, they say TVOC, but that just means that any volatile organic compound, you smell you know, leaves in your office or somebody puts perfume or cooks or whatever happens, whatever smell happens, plus humidity probably gets captured. We don't know what part of it gets captured. Uh, but uh, I haven't really found TVOC sensors that useful. But on the other hand, you know, I'm looking at it from a very different perspective than somebody, uh, you know, the lay person would. Uh, and so, you know, for the most part, I don't really, you know, I haven't yet looked in, uh, dug into TVOC sensors and they're never really a concern for me. <laughs> Understood. Understood. Um, I will say, though, I'm sorry, one more thing I'll just quickly say. You know, I think uh, it, it depends on what kind of TVOC sensor that you're looking at uh, or a VOC sensor, for example. Uh, you get very cheap metal oxide sensors. You get differences in technology that are probably more susceptible to humidity. Uh, you get much more expensive photoionization detectors that run about $600 for the sensor itself. And those are actually being used in some really nice GC mass specs, for example. And, uh, you know, I think with careful, uh, you know, control, you can use them even in high quality scientific equipment. So, but again, you're spending $600 for the sensor. So, you know, it comes down to what do you want it for? And, you know, what are you going to use it for? Now, you mentioned 
precision versus accuracy. And I, yeah. I you mm-hmm. corrected me, and I'm glad you did. On, on uh, you're looking at precision. Can you quickly, just for our audience, differentiate between what's precise and what's accurate? Yeah, so precise means that if you have, say, for example, five or 10 of these devices uh, across different rooms, if they measure the same level of PM or the same or the same temperature or the same relative humidity, all sensors will report the same thing, right? Uh, and as it goes up and down, they'll all track each other. But they may not be accurate because the PM reading that comes from the sensor it's set to some factory calibration. For example, the plant tower sensor is calibrated to ambient aerosol in China. And the, you know, in Beijing or Shanghai, air pollution is very different than in Pittsburgh. The size of the aerosol changes, the chemical composition of the aerosol changes. Uh, and so that really affects the response, how you convert the signal that you're capturing, which is really light scattering. And for people who may not be familiar, so if you look at a ray of sunshine in a room, right, and you see dust particles floating in the air, mm-hmm. that's scattering of light. And uh, so that's basically what the sensor is doing, but within, with a, say, red laser, a 650 nanometer laser or something like that. And the conversion from that scattered light to particulate mass, that changes depending on what kind of aerosol you're looking at. And so the, the factory calibration that's provided by the plant towers, which is from ambient pollution in Beijing or Shanghai or whatever is very different from the air pollution in Pittsburgh. And so the accuracy may be way off, but they're really precise. And so you'll measure the same thing again and again and again with different sensors. And if you're looking at trends, you just want to see which parts of your office is more polluted than the other, you know, that's really useful, right? Right. Uh, But you can't compare it to a standard like the EPA standard or something like that. Yeah, I was going to mention that when we had John. Can you go back to that ramp website and show that monitor again? Because I want to make sure we differentiate between the Met monitor and the other mm-hmm. monitor. Uh, go to the the photo on down there. Yeah, that photo on the right. That Met. I forget what you call it. It's a Met monitor. Yeah, Met one. Met one yes. PM monitor. Yeah, that has a filter in it, and it's uh, actually. No, it's a, it's just a nephilometer. The same thing. It's oh, it basically, yeah. It's got a little pump that's sucking in air. So the top is a little cyclone that cuts out any particles bigger than 2.5 micrometers. And uh, so as air goes through, there are particles in there and they go through an optical chamber, they scatter light. And that scattering <laughs> is now recorded by the sensor as a measure of PM. Okay. Uh, How accurate, you know, a lot of these particle counters have to take that or they, they do take that information and then they convert it to uh, information like is used by the National Ambient Air Quality Standards whenever they, they measure uh, particulate. Yeah. How accurate are those, those uh, conversions? Right. So I think that's, uh, I think, again, it depends really on what on your, on the type of pollution that they're measuring. Okay. And, you know, if it's some factory calibration, it's not going to be very accurate, I don't think. Uh, in our experience, you do need localized calibrations. And uh, so, you know, for example, we try to do this uh, uh, calibrate. So we actually co-located these sensors with our reference PM monitors, right? Oh. And uh, then we develop corrections for it. And... Uh, 
we up so those Pittsburgh corrections we then applied to some studies that we are doing in Kigali. You know, you mentioned the Kigali, the Kigali Collaborative Research Center in Rwanda, and uh, basically the values were off by like a factor of two or something like that. And so, you know, we have to develop localized corrections for that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, this is entirely doable. I mean, this is what we do as scientists, right? And uh, the other thing also to remember, for example, is that the national ambient air quality standards, when they use those values, uh, they are actually measured, they're measuring particulate matter mass at a particular relative humidity and temperature. Uh, humidity in particular makes a big difference to the aerosol mass. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this, these sensors are measuring light scattering, which really is ambient conditions. So the more humid the atmosphere, the bigger the particle typically grows, the more light it scatters, and the more apparent mass is sensed by the device. So you need to correct for that humidity growth. Uh, you need to correct for changes in chemical composition and size distribution. But once you do all of that, uh, what we typically find is that on a one-hour average value, we get plus or minus four microgram per meter cube uh, uncertainty. Uh, so for comparison, on annual average basis in Pittsburgh, the PM2.5 is like 10 microgram per meter cube. Uh, and so we get on an hourly uh, value, we get plus or minus four microgram per meter cube. Uh, the more you measure it, uh, say one day or one week, that uncertainty goes down to about plus or minus two microgram per meter cube, I think. I could be getting the number wrong. But the more you average it out, the more of this noise uncertainty just you know drops out. Gotcha. So for longer term studies, when you do those averages, you get much more precise numbers, even plus or minus one microgram per meter cube for a yearly average. So that's getting close to reference grade territory. I'm not going to say that these low cost sensors are reference grade monitors, but we can get pretty accurate uh, values out of them when you do when you treat them carefully and you measure them you know average them over a long period of time we're going to get a little more into that in just a moment before we do we want to thought uh, stop for half time and thank our sponsors we'll be back with with dr subramanian our marquee sponsor is first on site your trusted full service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World. AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. CIRI science.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs 
at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with Dr. Submarani, and let, let me ask you, why? what led to the surge in this um uh, sensor availability worldwide and and the cost coming down so much was it just competition between the chinese the uh swiss and and whomever else <laughs> that's a, that's a great question so uh honestly i mean i i'm going to guess here as i haven't really dug into it uh i do know that the company that uh, this is actually very relevant for IQ radio. Uh, the company that uh, the reason that the plant tower sensors are so phenomenally precise, excellent products, and really cheap is because this company called Plant Tower makes them in China for air quality monitoring in ducts in HVAC systems. Oh, okay. And uh, I think part of that can be traced back to, for example. Uh, the Beijing Olympics, right? Think of uh, where, and I think around that time, there is also the U.S. Embassy putting out their the reference PM monitor in Beijing, and that led to a huge outcry because the government was not releasing their data, right? Uh, the Chinese government. And the U.S. government put it up on their website because it's, you know, public taxpayer-funded data, and they had to put it up on a website. And the local Chinese population, they saw it, and they were like, why are we breathing such bad air? And that led to a huge interest in air purifiers and you know filtration systems, and that probably led to this company called Plant Tower saying, "How do we know if a filtration system is working? Let's put a sensor in there, right?" Hmm. And they make basically millions of these sensors each year because they are putting it in all of, all over the place, all the buildings, HVAC systems, whatever, right? And so, uh, you know, the magic of mass manufacture leads to reproducible reproducibility and low cost essentially uh and that led to essentially increased interest now people start looking at okay how do i measure air quality on my own oh there is this cheap sensor that's available how do i make it work and that leads to diy solutions and then slowly other companies start making it on their own uh you know and so that you know i think that just or grew basically organically from there people started knowing that they I mean, I was doing people started guessing, yes, I can measure this pollution myself. Uh, now, what the values are, we already talked about the technical details of why that's not accurate or not. But on the other hand, this is something that people can do really quickly rather than trying to rely on a sensor on a government monitor that's like maybe, you know, in Lawrenceville and you live in, uh, you know, Swiss Rail and is it really a representative? No. So, but in general, you know, that's, I, I would imagine that's how it really happened. Uh, and are there other? Do you think there will be others getting into this? It seems like the price is so low now. It's it's might be tough to make a ton of money on this. Yeah, I think uh, the so there so there are a lot of companies who actually make sensors, right? And the plant tower is actually a little bit more expensive than you than the other sensors that are on the market. Right? It's like twelve, thirteen, fourteen dollars. They have a variety of different products, some with two lasers, some with like, you know, little motors and things like that. So I bought a few of these things. Uh, but uh, uh, but there are other companies like Shinye, for example, and a lot of other similar companies which make like $3 PM sensors. Mm. And uh, 
Uh, I think in it, there is some technology differences. Sensarion, I think, is typically like $50 for a PM sensor, but they have a nice little sheath flow inside to protect it so that lasts a bit longer. Uh, uh, but you know, there's different, different, different products that come there, and I think, uh, uh, I mean, I'm a big believer in you know, cots, commercial off-the-shelf products as much as possible. Uh, if it works, I'm really interested in what you do with it rather than trying to build it myself. But on the other hand, I'm sure somebody will come along with a better product soon, and there are better products. Uh, these sensors, while they are great, they have significant deficiencies. Uh, so, for example, what I've found. Uh, through my research is that uh, they, and others have also done the same similar tests and a lot of lab studies and field studies in the US and in Europe have found that these sensors are really good for measuring particles smaller than one micrometers. So it's what we would call PM1, but not really for larger particles, so like dust. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, a company may say that they're reporting PM1, PM2.5 and PM10, but in reality, all they are measuring is PM1. Hmm. And so, you know, if you want to measure dust, which is more important for, say, construction activities, for example, then you need actual optical particle counters. Uh, and uh, those are generally more pricey. I think the best one that we have right now is like $400. For the I was going to ask you about that because I've seen, you know, People buy particle counters and they could be 1,000, 2,000, sometimes more. Um, you think now we can get pretty reliable and I guess we're going to say precise. Uh, and, and are these also accurate um, particle counters in that four to five, six hundred dollar range? Uh, you can actually. I mean, but this is the bad sensor itself, right? And uh, I think one of, uh, actually one of your sponsors in the Particles Plus, of course, TSI, right? I mean, these are the leaders in particle counting and particle sizing technologies. Right. Uh, you know, particles Plus is really nice, uh, has quite a few nice, really nice particle counting products, particle sizing products, but those are real optical particle counters. TSI does excellent work in particle counting and measurements. They are basically the world leaders in that. Uh, but those things are typically several thousand dollars, right? And, uh, but I mean, there is, uh, as far as I can tell, I mean, there is just one product from this, uh, from this British, developed at a British university and now manufactured by AlphaSense uh, that has an OPC and that's an actual optical particle counter. And that's actually $400 for that. I think mm -hmm. it's not as precise as you would get from Particles Plus or from TSI, but you know, it gets gets you much closer to the affordable sensor range, if you will. There, isn't you. A, there aren't a lot of products like that, though, unfortunately. Now, there are a lot of people now promoting these low-cost sensors, you know, $100, $200, maybe $300 range yeah. for HVAC contractors and, you know, mm -hmm. people who are in people's homes on a regular basis. Maybe they leave a uh, a sensor there for a week or so and come back and collect it and get the data. What, you know, I, I think there's value there, but I'm wondering what are the things they should be watching out for when they, when, you know, uh, when tradespeople buy these particle counter or low cost sensors, let's say in general, not just particles, but you know, yeah. everything, what should they be watching out for? Oh boy. Uh, the, well, I think I think uh, 
if if it's a contractor and they have to actually do some sort of follow some sort of OSHA regulation or something like that, right? Uh, you might want to see if the if the manufacturer says this is calibrated to some NIST traceable standard, but obviously then this becomes really expensive. Uh, ideally, what I would do, I mean, what I tend to do is I usually end up by looking, I mean, number one, asking people if other people have used it, number one. Uh, number two, if I can afford it, then I would buy two or three of those units and run them together and see if they actually make report similar numbers. And if they are precise, that's a good measure of, you know, at least relative differences in air pollution. Uh, I mean, accuracy is still a challenge because, you know, you're trying to, you, not everybody has access to reference grade monitors. You can't really check the quality and you're reliant on the manufacturer to tell you the values. But we're finding that, for example, the manufacturer values are based on some calibration in a factory somewhere, which is not representative of your local conditions. So you don't know how well it works. Uh, and so I think uh, the, I mean, yeah, I didn't have a good answer for that. Unfortunately, no, I think you I did actually that just comparing, you know, because most of these guys are going to have more than one. Yeah. So I think a key point is to compare them and make sure they're, they're precise. They're they're measuring yeah. about the same amount, right? And you know, um, I think it's uh, I think especially if you're you know in the U.S., uh, the U.S. EPA makes their ambient air quality data publicly available, so yeah. you can just leave it outside on a reasonably dry, clear day and just let it run for a day or so, and then compare it to the nearest monitor, hmm. right? Okay, interesting. I'm wondering. We've had a lot of supply chain issues in in other businesses was um were the supply chain issues that were felt worldwide in in other types of industries did they have the same problem with these sensors uh i mean yes and no i mean i would definitely i think it's more because of the electronics right uh, because the sensors themselves you know you might be able to get it but some of these uh, electronic boards even the sensors actually are sometimes on back order for several weeks or several months even. Uh, and so I think that it definitely is a concern that most of the production is in China and that has issues for the United States, for example, even a country like India doesn't like Chinese products for you know, geopolitical reasons. Uh, but uh, I think uh, there's also the whole supply chain issues uh, but there's a lot of local manufacturing as well, I think, in different countries. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was just talking to a, a manufacturer in Indonesia, uh, Nafas, who basically end up, you know, uh, sourcing it locally for this very reason. And they have local factories who can produce their products, I think. Uh, I hope Piotr doesn't mind me mentioning that, but... Uh, I think uh, there is, for example, Honeywell probably produces their products in the U.S., right? And uh, I think uh, it depends on where you make it. But yeah, I think there's definitely challenges in the electronic side of things for sure. Let's talk about, you know, how is is a sensor actually cleaned? It would seem that these uh, optical sensors are going to get soiled over a period of time. Yeah. You know, can they be effectively cleaned or are they just thrown away or how would that work? Replace. Replace, okay. No <laughs> yeah, problem. I mean, they're, they're, no, number one, they're cheap enough. Okay. Uh, and uh, number two, 
I think, uh, so we have used these sensors, for example, in the ramp network for about, you know, since 2017, right, in Pittsburgh. And usually the PM sensors last two, three, four years without any problems, given that the pollution levels are reasonably, relatively low compared to what they can measure. Uh, the same sensor in a place like Delhi might last maybe six months to a year before it needs to be replaced. But in Pittsburgh, it will last about four years, maybe maybe longer. Uh, we have had other, I think, but typically you, I mean, you can actually take apart this plant tower sensor itself or the other similar sensor. Uh, and I've actually taken it apart and, you know, it seems reasonable enough to just blow some electronic duster kind of air into it or, you know, do typical optical wipe cleaning or whatever else. But uh, I think that can potentially be issues with changing the laser alignment, for example, that, you know, given that you may not be able to put it back exactly the way it was calibrated. So that affects your resulting result, you know, data. And so I think it would just be easier exactly, you know, I think uh, uh, it would be easier to just replace the sensor itself. You know, you had mentioned different standards. You talked about the EPA having standards and so on and so forth. Are there standards by which um, sensor manufacturers, um, you know, comply with so that you can kind of, uh, you know, compare one sensor manufacturer's product to another? Or is it kind of like the not. Wild West? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much like the Wild West. Uh, there, uh I think there have been efforts to uh, put together some testing guidelines. Uh, uh, I was involved in a workshop uh, with the US EPA and other experts in the US uh, looking at how do we actually do performance targets for evaluation of sensors. So for example, you can set some performance guidelines, say, does your sensor meet these, uh, meet these targets, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges is that for example, you know, so some, you know, devices that you certify, the certification process itself takes a couple of years. That's typically, that can be longer than the lifetime of the product, right? I mean, the, they're evolving pretty rapidly and the firmware changes, the design changes. And so it's really not worth it for the sensor manufacturer to go through a long drawn out certification process. Uh, and, uh, the other option, though, is for sensor manufacturers to actually send their devices to an independent testing agency. Uh, for example, the South Coast Air Quality Management District runs this program called AQSpec, Sensor Performance Evaluation Center. Uh, a lot of people find that resource very useful. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it's actually run, run through a guy I knew in grad school, Andrea Polidori and his colleagues, Vasilios and others. But... Uh, uh, they are basically getting sensor manufacturers sending them devices for testing like three devices. So you have replicability being tested. Uh, they run it against reference grade monitors uh, and they run it for about two or three months in the nice you know, Southern California climate. And uh, you get some really nice results on precision as well as accuracy. And uh, those results are made publicly available. Uh, I think there's probably, I don't know, 200 tests my devices tested and reported on the on the on the on the website right now. So manufacturers could actually do that, right, and show that look, our devices are tested, and this is a performance by an independent agency. You know, it would seem that in your climate, um, air conditioning would be uh, very very important. 
And, it is. <laughs> and, 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 and typically with air conditioning, you know, there's moisture generation, you know, you really can't get around it, you know, particularly uh, in the areas where the coils are and, you know, we end up getting leaks and in certain situations, you know, you get moisture into the systems yeah. and, 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 and so on and so forth. So it would seem that perhaps mold might be an issue, uh, you know, in commercial, probably even residential institutional air handling systems you know could you comment yeah. on that uh actually that's not uh, i would probably not be able to comment on that i think that's not mold unfortunately is not something that can be measured with sensors as such okay. and that really required that's a bioaerosol program i have colleagues here at kiri who actually work on that uh but uh we have been looking at some indoor air pollution and including bioaerosols testing it in different places but I think that is still, uh, you know, subject of ongoing research. Right. Well, it's, you know, you're not going to necessarily be able to identify, but you certainly would pick up uh, if I, I suspect that there were a lot of spores in the yeah. air. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, still the measurement of those spores I typically think the spores are going to be like larger than one micron. Uh, right. I mean, the size is larger than the sensors can measure. So it's not particularly Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, what about wildfires? You know, in the United States, uh, it seems that every year we get more and more wildfires. And yeah. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, if you have any experience or any recommendations for, you know, how sensors uh, could be used, you know, before, during, and even in cleanup uh, after wildfires. Yeah. Uh Actually, the there was an EPA wildfire sensors challenge a few years ago, and the ramp actually won that challenge. Oh. Uh, oh. I mean, oh, by the way, I should make it clear that I have no financial stake in the company that makes the ramps. We ended <laughs> up just you know not doing that, I'm but uh, uh, but uh, so they did win the EPA wildfire challenge, and I think even the purple airs themselves. I think a couple of ways that they are particularly useful. Uh, the EPA themselves have been producing enhanced air pollution and warning maps for wildfires. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they actually track where the fires are, the smoke is through sensor networks that are already independently deployed and they incorporate that into their maps. So you can actually go to the EPA website and look up where the pollution is closest to your house and maybe avoid that, for example. Uh, the other one is to potentially have a have one of these sensors inside your house and one outside your house, right? And you look at data that way. And uh, if they are similar to each other, that probably tells you there is some infiltration going on. Your house is not well sealed, which can be a problem during wildfires. So maybe you need to get some, you know, some HVAC people coming in and taking a look and sealing up any leaks, for example. Uh, so that's one way to one way that you could use it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a huge potential for people to, for example, even simply avoid going outside, right? I mean, if it's really polluted outside, but you have an air purifier, I mean, you can't stick an air purifier outside because it's not going to create, it's not going to clean up the air outside. Right. The pollution is always there. But if you put it inside, then you have an air purifier going on. You can reduce the air pollution. Any infiltration will be cleaned up. Uh, but you know, you basically know when to turn on your uh, air purifier, for example. Uh, so you know those things, th- those sorts of personal actions that people can take, right, 
to control their indoor environment uh, can be really, you know, uh, enabled by the use of these sensors. I, I think I'm back. Oh, good, Joe. Uh, yep. Just it just as a follow up, it almost makes sense. You know, inside of homes, we have smoke detectors, and you know, when it detects, uh, it alarms. It'll it almost make sense to have those detectors outside. You know, in wildfire zones or whatever, so that um, you know, in the event the alarm goes off, uh, you know, people could take enhanced uh, you know treatments and and, and and precautions and so on and so yeah. forth, and have some early warning, but. Welcome back, Joe. Well, thanks. Did you go to the roundup yet? No, did not. Let's do that, John. The roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at April, A-I-R-E dot com. All right, I'm back. I don't know why, but the electric seems to go out here on uh, Fridays at 1245. But (laughs) (laughs) I am back. Anyway, you've looked at a lot of these different sensors and low-cost monitors. Is there, obviously, it sounds like there may be some you think are better than others. Is there any you'd recommend? Oh boy, you're going to get me into trouble, aren't you? Oh, uh, I <laughs> not, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's fine. I think, generally speaking, uh, so the core sensor itself. I mean, there are options, obviously. Uh, I mean, I haven't tested all of them, so I can't say for sure. But generally speaking, the devices, the general PM sensors that are plant tower based or sensorion based, uh, they uh, they are generally pretty good, at least precise. And so, but again, you know, this just comes out to the manufacturer may, who's actually integrating the device, the sensor into their device, right? And there are quite a few manufacturers around and sometimes the way they package the device, the sensor into the device also can make a difference to the performance. Uh, the simplest is really, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm still struck by the genius of the purple air. It's a really simple device. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, the sensor is exposed directly to the air with no interference in the middle. And it's really, you know, easy to deploy device. So I love the purple air. Uh, the, there are other products as well from other manufacturers. Uh, but, you know, the RAM, for example, now has plant tower sensors integrated into it, uh, similar to other, you know, the, uh, multi-pollutant boxes from uh, QuantAQ or from... Uh, uh, you know, clarity nodes or whatever else. And they're all pretty nice devices for, yeah, as long as you know what you're measuring, right? And uh, I think if you're not using these devices to measure dust, as in construction dust or desert dust, uh, you're just looking at it to look at, say, uh, you know, urban air pollution from cars and trucks and whatnot. And, and that's probably fine. Uh, and if, if, if you answered this before, just let me know. But um can you give listeners a tip? Like if you're using these low cost sensors. Yeah. One of the key things is you've got to get the air you want to look at into the sensor. Um, Any tips for how to make sure we do that? Do we keep them down low? Do we keep them up high? Do we keep them in uh, certain parts of the building? Yes. So usually I, I mean, so I'm trying to look at what people are breathing, right? So I try to keep them, you know, at breathing height, which is generally between five and seven feet. 
usually above the ground uh, and uh, about two meters, say. And I try to keep it in as free flowing air as possible, right? You don't want to, you don't want it to be in a corner where it's surrounded by walls on two or three sides, in which case you end up with like local eddies, which may not be represented over the broader air pollution around you. Uh, so, for example, if you brought up that uh, uh, the website with the ramp cliff, uh, you know, you had uh, the patio, for example, which is, you know, fairly open uh, and it's on a pole uh, or in the tripod in the yard or in a rooftop pole. There is no visible obstruction, you know, within a reasonable distance. And that's really what you want to do. Okay, and in, indoors, same the same thing. You want to keep it in an area where you're going to get yeah. that. I wonder if maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to put that sensor close to, if there's a central return air where a lot of the air is going to be going by, maybe that's a good location. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a good location. Uh, yeah. And we've we've also had Haven uh, on. They, they make sensors that go into ductwork and, uh, and return air. Are you familiar with them at all? No, I'm not. All right. We'll uh, put a link to that show up for our listeners. Cliff, before we go, any final questions from you? Yeah, just just one question. Um, you know, as, as a scientist uh, and researcher, you're really into data. And a lot of times data ends up being, being numbers. And, it, you know, it would seem that homeowners, uh, you know, might like something other than a number you know, like yeah. an alarm or a, a light that got redder if, if things yeah. were bad or, or whatever. I just wondered yeah. if, if, if you know of any sensors that kind of, you know, react uh, optically where you can actually see something rather than just see a number. Actually, so uh, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know if you can see this. I mean, you know, I, mean I have my little Aranet here, right? Or I have this yeah. little uh, other PM sensor type here. And right. these actually, the Aranet is, is a beautiful piece of design. It basically has like green, yellow, and red. And, okay, good. You know, it changes the the indicator here changes its green. It's six thirty eight ppm of CO two, and so that's mm-hmm. good, right? And so just the little bar changes, and so people can quickly interpret it and understand. Uh, I think this little Chingping device that I got for like I think hundred pounds of Amazon UK. Uh, it's got a little PM sensor inside and a CO2 sensor inside. I tweeted about it recently. Uh, not endorsing any of these products. I just no, understand. It's nice and convenient. Uh, but actually, I found that the little LED changes color based on the level. Uh, and obviously, there's no, unfortunately, there's no regulation of what constitutes good, bad. I mean, I think these the people are making some judgments on their own. Uh, it's not unreasonable. I mean, in general, I mean, you know, so long as you don't delve too deeply into it. Uh, but I think generally, I think colors, people do find colors more easy to interpret than numbers for sure. Uh, I really wanted to quickly go back to Joe's question about where to put a sensor indoors. Uh, I think one key thing that we need to remember is that pollution can actually vary indoors from room to room. Uh, so for example, there might be kitchen activity, somebody's cooking, for example, and whatever you're cooking, you know, that uh, if you put the sensor in, say, the living room uh, or, you know, close to, you know, the vent out, uh, you may not be able to see what the pollution is in the kitchen because that has a, hum- you know, a, a range hood or whatever. Uh, but there is pollution, you know, that, that smoke or the gas pollution that comes out is, is spreading in the kitchen as well. So you may want to consider to pay, yeah, at least one sensor in the kitchen, for example. So. 
Very interesting. I, I really enjoyed this. I wonder, before we go, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? Well, I mean, you know, knowledge is power, right? I mean, uh, the these sensors make it really easy for people to track their own exposure to pollution. Uh, I, I think uh, with now that we are fairly, you know, almost seven or eight years into the revolution that has brought about by these low-cost sensors, uh, I think we are getting improvements in manufacturing, improvements in precision, affordability. Uh, I think, but people should be really careful about what, I mean, not to take these values as absolute values, maybe in general use, look at trends uh, and also know the limits, which, you know, it's not always easy for lay people uh, to keep track of the latest research for sure. Uh, but uh, there is an active community on Twitter, especially. Uh, you might have seen that over the pandemic where people you know, are very happy to volunteer their time scientists and if you ask questions. And, uh, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I think uh, yeah, these are great. You know, if you can get one, get one, use it and uh, see what you can do with it. What, is there a name for that Twitter group? Uh, I, I mean, there are probably lists. There is no group. I mean, I think we just follow each other or people generally look at who's tweeting. Uh, but yeah. Unfortunately, so yeah. follow our Submaranian, and uh, then then from there you'll branch out into wherever is important with respect to this <laughs> particular you. conversation. I have I do have one other comment that I think the thing I've picked up today that I think is really an important point that you've made several times is whatever sensor you're using, especially if you're a professional, and, and you know we realize that they're going to be hopefully precise, maybe not accurate. I think it's really important for us to know how the manufacturer set the levels they use for things like, you know, good, moderate, bad. Um, and, and you mentioned that a few times, and I wondered if you'd like to comment on, do you, do you think that's an important uh, point that we picked up here? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the couple of issues that I would, I think this actually has an underlying thing as well, right? And that, uh there are, you know, environmental effects that can affect the response of the sensor. And uh, I don't think manufacturers have been very clear on how they have actually corrected for these artifacts and whether they're, what they're showing as green, yellow, blue, or whatever is actually in, corrected for that artifact, right? You don't want a sensor going red or purple just because of humidity in the air, uh, and which is very likely. And so I think, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, th that is something that I think uh, would, the industry would benefit from greater transparency uh, at the very least, and uh, at least getting their devices tested by an independent, you know, entity. I don't know who that is for the indoor air quality world, but that would be a pretty uh, good improvement, especially now that if everybody's using a sensor, right? Absolutely. Well, I want to thank Dr. Subramanian. Uh, much appreciated. Great to meet you and uh, get a chance to chat a little bit and uh, looking forward to following you as time goes on. I know you, you're on Twitter quite a bit and that's where I ran into you. And I was so happy to hear you've been in Pittsburgh and you're from, you know, CMU guy. That's wonderful news. But uh, please come back and join us sometime. We'll, I'm sure this uh, issue is going to be, you know, very important for many years to come. Thank you so much for the invite, Joe and Cliff.
Good talking. All right. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Of course, John, you got to have faith at the controls. He's got a busy day today uh, cleaning up my mess from uh, the electric going off. We'll we'll get that fixed up. I also want to make sure we thank our sponsors, most importantly, our audience. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.